Welcome back to A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. Today we are diving into chapter 27. Christmas was a charmed time in Brooklyn. It was in the air long before it came. The first hint of it was Mr. Morton going around the schools teaching Christmas carols, but the first sure sign was the store windows. You have to be a child to know how wonderful is a store window filled with dolls and sleds and other toys. And this wonder came free to Francie. It was nearly as good as actually having the toys to be permitted to look at them through the glass window. Oh, what a thrill there was for Francie when she turned a street corner and saw another store all fixed up for Christmas. Ah, the clean shining window with cotton batting sprinkled with stardust for a carpet. There were flaxen-haired dolls and others, which Francie liked better, who had hair the color of good coffee with lots of cream in it. Their faces were perfectly tinted and they wore the clothes like of which Francie had never seen on earth. The dolls stood upright in flimsy cardboard boxes. They stood with the help of a bit of tape passed around the neck and ankles and through holes at the back of the box. Oh, the deep blue eyes framed by thick lashes that stared straight into a little girl's heart and the perfect miniature hands extended, appealingly asking, please, won't you be my mama? And Francie had never had a doll, except a two inch one that cost a nickel. And the sleds, or as the Williamsburg children called them, the sleighs. There was a child's dream of heaven come true. A new sled with a flower someone had dreamed up painted on it. A deep blue flower with bright green leaves. The ebony black painted runners. The smooth steering bar made of hardwood and gleaming varnish over all. And the names painted on them. Rosebud, Magnolia, Snow King, the flyer, thought Francie. If I could only have one of those, I'd never ask God for another thing as long as I live. There were roller skates made of shining nickel with straps of good brown leather and silvered nervous wheels tensed for rolling, needing but a breath to start them turning as they lay crossed one over the other, sprinkled with mica snow on a bed of cloud-like cotton. There were other marvelous things. Francie couldn't take them all in. Her head spun and she was dizzy with the impact of all the seeing and all the making up of stories about the toys in the shop windows. The spruce trees began coming into the neighborhood the week before Christmas. Their branches were corded to hold back the glory of their spreading and probably to make shopping easier. Vendors rented space on the curb before a store 
and stretched a rope from pole to pole and leaned the trees against it. All day they walked up and down this one-sided avenue of aromatic leaning trees, blowing on stiff, ungloved fingers and looking with bleak hope at those people who paused. A few ordered a tree set aside for the day. Others stopped to price, inspect, and conjecture. But most came just to touch the boughs and surreptitiously pinch a fingerful of spruce needles together to release the fragrance. And the air was cold and still and full of the pine smell and the smell of tangerines, which appeared in the stores only at Christmas time. And the mean street was truly wonderful for a little while. There was a cruel custom in the neighborhood. It was about the trees still unsold when midnight of Christmas Eve approached. There was a saying that if you waited until then, you wouldn't have to buy a tree, that they'd chuck them at you. This was literally true. At midnight, on the eve of our dear Savior's birth, the kids gathered where there were unsold trees. The man threw each tree in turn, starting with the biggest. Kids volunteered to stand up against the throwing. If a boy didn't fall down under the impact, the tree was his. If he fell, he forfeited his chance at winning a tree. Only the roughest boys and some of the young men elected to be hit by the big trees. The others waited shrewdly until a tree came up that they could stand against. The little kids waited for the tiny, foot-high trees and shrieked in delight when they won one. On the Christmas Eve, when Francie was ten and nearly nine, Mama consented to let them go down and have their first try for a tree. Francie had picked out her tree earlier in the day. She had stood near it all afternoon and evening, praying that no one would buy it. To her joy, it was still there at midnight. It was the biggest tree in the neighborhood, and its price was so high that no one could afford to buy it. It was 10 feet high. Its branches were bound with new white rope, and it came to a sure, pure point at the top. The man took this tree out first. Before Francie could speak up, a neighborhood bully, a boy of 18 known as Punky Perkins, stepped forward and ordered the man to chuck the tree at him. The man hated the way Punky was so confident. He looked around and asked, Anybody else want to take a chance on it? Francie stepped forward. Me, mister. A spurt of derisive laughter came from the tree man. The kids snickered. A few adults who had gathered to watch the fun guffawed. Ah, oh, go on, you're too little, the tree man objected. Me and my brother, we're not too little together. She pulled Neely forward. The man looked at them, a thin girl of ten with starveling hollows in her cheeks, but with the chin still baby round. He looked at the little boy with his fair hair and round blue eyes. Neely Nolan, all innocence and trust. Two ain't fair, yelped Punky. Shut your lousy trap, advised the man who held all the power in that hour. These here kids is got nerve, 
stand back the rest of yous. These kids is going to have a show at this tree. The others made a wavering lane. Francie and Neely stood at one end of it, and the big man with the big tree at the other. It was a human funnel, with Francie and her brother making the small end of it. The man flexed his great arms to throw the great tree. He noticed how tiny the children looked at the end of the short lane. For the split part of a moment, the tree thrower went through a kind of Gethsemane? Gethsemane? Oh, Jesus Christ, his soul agonized. Why don't I just give him the tree, say Merry Christmas, and let him go? What's the tree to me? I can't sell it no more this year, and it won't keep till next year. The kids watched him solemnly as he stood there in his moment of thought. But then, he rationalized, if I did that, all the other would expect to get him handed to him, and next year nobody at all would buy a tree off of me. They'd all wait to get em handed to em on a silver plate. I ain't a big enough man to give this tree away for nothing. No, I ain't big enough. I ain't big enough to do a thing like that. I gotta think of myself and my own kids. He finally came to his conclusion. Oh, what the hell. Them two kids has gotta live in this world. They got to get used to it. They got to learn to give and to take punishment. And by Jesus, it ain't give but take, take, take all the time in this goddamned world. As he threw the tree with all of his strength, his heart wailed out. It's a goddamned rotten, lousy world. Francie saw the tree leave his hands. There was a split bit of being when time and space had no meaning. The whole world stood still as something dark and monstrous came through the air. The tree came towards her, blotting out all memory of her ever having lived. There was nothing, nothing but pungent darkness and something that grew and grew as it rushed at her. She staggered as the tree hit them. Neely went to his knees, but she pulled him up fiercely before he could go down. There was a mighty swishing sound as the tree settled. Everything was dark, green, and prickly. Then she felt a sharp pain at the side of her head where the trunk of the tree had hit her. She felt Neely trembling. When some of the older boys pulled the tree away, they found Francie and her brother standing upright, hand in hand. Blood was coming from scratches on Neely's face. He looked more like a baby than ever with his bewildered blue eyes, and the fairness of his skin made more noticeable because of the clear red blood. But they were smiling. Had they not won the biggest tree in the neighborhood? Some of the boys hollered, Hooray! And a few adults clapped. The tree man eulogized them by screaming, And now get the hell out of here with you tree, you lousy bastards. Francie had heard swearing since she had heard words. Obscenity and profanity had no meaning among as such among these people. They were emotional expressions of inarticulate people with small vocabularies. They made a kind of dialect. The phrases could mean many things according to the expression and tone used in saying them. 
So now, when Francie heard themselves called lousy bastards, she smiled tremulously at the kind man. She knew that he was really saying, Goodbye. God bless you. It wasn't easy dragging that tree home. They had to pull it inch by inch. They were handicapped by a boy who ran alongside them yelping, free ride, all aboard, who'd hop on and make them drag him along. But he got sick of the game eventually and went away. In a way, it was good that it took them so long to get the tree home. It made their triumph more drawn out. Francie glowed when she heard a lady say, I never saw such a big tree. A man called after them, You kids must have robbed a bank to buy such a big tree. The cop on their corner stopped them, examined the tree, and solemnly offered to buy it for ten cents, fifteen cents if they deliver it to his home. Francie nearly burst with pride, although she knew he was joking. She said she wouldn't sell it for a dollar even. He shook his head and said she was foolish not to grab the offer. He went up to a quarter, but Francie kept smiling and shaking her head no. It was like acting in a Christmas play where the setting was a street corner and the time a frosty Christmas Eve and the characters a kind cop, her brother and herself. Francie knew all the dialogue. The cop gave his lines right, and Francie picked up her cues happily, and the stage directions were the smiles between the spoken lines. They had to call up Papa to help them get the tree up the narrow stairs. Papa came running down. To Francie's relief, he ran down straight and not sideways, which proved that he was still sober. Papa's amazement at the size of the tree was flattering. He pretended to believe that it wasn't theirs. Francie had a lot of fun convincing him, although she knew all the while that the whole thing was make-believe. Papa pulled in front and Francie and Neely pushed in back and they began forcing the tree up the three narrow flights of stairs. Johnny was so excited that he started singing, not caring that it was rather late at night. He sang, Holy Night. The narrow walls took up his clear, sweet voice, held it for a breath, and gave it back with doubled sweetness. Doors creaked open, and families gathered on the landings, pleased and amazed at the something unexpected being added to that moment of their lives. Francie saw the Tinmore girls standing together in their doorway, their gray hair in crimpers, and ruffled starch nightgowns showing under their voluminous wrappers. They added their thin, poignant voices to Johnny's. Floss Gaddis, her mother and her brother Henry, who was dying of consumption, stood in their doorway. Henny was crying, and when Johnny saw him, he let the song trail off. He thought maybe it made Henny too sad. Flossie was in costume, waiting for an escort to take her to a masquerade ball, which started soon after midnight. She stood there in her Klondike dance hall girl costume, with sheer black silk stockings, spool-heeled slippers, one red garter fastened under a knee, and swinging a black mask in her hand. She smiled into Johnny's eyes. She put her hand on her, hip, on her hip and leaned seductively, or so she thought, 
against the door jam, more to make Henny smile than anything else, Johnny said. Floss, we got no angel for the top of this Christmas tree. How about you obliging? Floss was all ready to make a dirty reply about the wind blowing her drawers off if she was up that high, but she changed her mind. There was something about the big, proud tree, now so humble in its being dragged, something about the beaming children, something about the rare goodwill of the neighbors and the way the lights looked turned low in the halls that made her ashamed of her unspoken reply. All she said was, Gee, ain't you the kidder, Johnny Nolan. Katie stood alone on the top of the last flight of steps with her hands clasped before her. She listened to the singing. She looked down and watched their slow progress up the stairs. She was thinking deeply. They think this is so good, she thought. They think it's good, this tree they got for nothing and their father playing up to them and the singing and the way the neighbors are happy. They think they're mighty lucky and that they're living and that it's Christmas again. They can't see that we live on a dirty street in a dirty house among people who aren't much good. Johnny and the children can't see how pitiful it is that our neighbors have to make happiness out of this filth and dirt. My children must get out of this. They must come to more than Johnny or me or all these people around us. But how is this to come about? Reading a page from those books every day and saving pennies in the tin can bank isn't enough. Money, would that make it better for them? Yes, it would make it easy. But no, the money wouldn't be enough. McGarity owns the saloon standing on the corner and he has lots of money. His wife wears diamond earrings, but her children are not as good and smart as my children. They are mean and greedy towards others because they have the things to taunt poor children with. I have seen the McGarity girl eating from a bag of candy on the street while a ring of hungry children watched her. I saw those children looking at her and crying in their hearts. And when she couldn't eat any more, she threw the rest down the sewer rather than give it to them. Ah, no, it isn't the money alone. The McGarity girl wears a different hair bow each day, and they cost 50 cents apiece, and that would feed the four of us here for one day. But her hair is thin and pale red. My Neely has a big hole in his zitful cap and it's stretched out of shape, but he has thick, deep, golden hair that curls. My Fancy wears no hair bow, but her hair is long and shining. Can money buy things like that? No. That means there must be something bigger than money. Miss Jackson teaches at the settlement house and she has no money. She works for charity. She lives in a little room there on the top floor. She only has one dress, but she keeps it clean and pressed. Her eyes look straight into yours when she talks, when you talk with her. When you listen to her, it's like you used to be sick, but hearing her voice, it's making you well again. She knows about things, Miss Jackson. She understands about things. 
She can live in the middle of a dirty neighborhood and be fine and clean and like an actress in a play, someone you can look at, but who is too fine to touch. There is that difference between her and Miss McGarity, who has so much money, but is too fat and acts in a dirty way with the truck drivers who deliver her husband's beer. So what is this difference between her and this Miss Jackson who has no money? An answer came to Katie. It was so simple that a flash of astonishment that felt like pain shot through her head. Education, that was it. It was education that made the difference. Education would pull them out of the grime and dirt. Proof? Miss Jackson was educated. The McGarity wasn't. Ah, that's what Mary Romley, her mother, had been telling her all those years. Only her mother did not have the one clear word. Education. Watching the children struggling up the stairs with their tree, listening to their voices, still so baby-like, she got these ideas about education. Francie is smart, she thought. She must go to high school and maybe beyond that. She's a learner and she'll be somebody someday. But when she gets educated, she will grow away from me. Why, she's growing away from me now. She does not love me the way the boy loves me. I feel her turn away from me. She does not understand me. All she understands is that I don't understand her. Maybe when she gets education, she will be ashamed of me, the way I talk. But she will have too much character to show it. Instead, she will try to make me different. She will come to see me and try to make me live in a better way. And I will be mean to her because I'll know she's above me. She will figure out too much about things as she grows older. She'll get to know too much for her own happiness. She'll find out that I don't love her as much as I love the boy. I cannot help it that this is so, but she won't understand that. Sometimes I think she knows that now. Already she is growing away from me. She will fight to get away soon. Changing over to that faraway school was the first step in her getting away from me. But Neely will never leave me. That is why I love him best. He will cling to me and understand me. I want him to be a doctor. He must be a doctor. Maybe he will learn to play the fiddle too. There is music in him. He got that from his father. He has gone further on the piano than Francie or me. Yes, his father has the music in him, but it does him no good. It is ruining him. If he couldn't sing, those men who treat him to drinks wouldn't want him around. What good is the fine way he can sing when it doesn't make him or us any better? With the boy, it will be different. He'll be educated. I must think out ways. We'll not have Johnny with us long. Dear God, I loved him so much once. And sometimes I still do. But he's worthless. 
worthless and God forgive me for ever finding it out. Thus, Katie figured out everything in the moments it took them to climb the stairs. People looking up at her, at her smooth, pretty, vivacious face, had no way of knowing about the painfully articulated resolves formulating in her mind. They set the tree up in the front room after spreading a sheet to protect the carpet of pink roses from falling pine needles. The tree stood in a big tin bucket with broken bricks to hold it upright. When the rope was cut away, the branches spread out to fill the whole room. They draped over the piano and it was so that some of the chairs stood among the branches. There was no money to buy tree decorations or lights, but the great tree standing there was enough. The room was cold. It was a poor year, that one, too poor for them to buy the extra coal for the front room stove. The room smelled cold and clean and aromatic. Every day during the week the tree stood there, Francie put her sweater and zitful cap and went in and sat under the tree. She sat there and enjoyed the smell and the dark greenness of it. Oh, the mystery of a great tree, a prisoner in a tin wash bucket in a tenement front room. Poor as they were that year, it was a very nice Christmas and the children did not lack for gifts. Mama gave each of them a pair of long woolen drawers drop seat style, and a woolen shirt with long sleeves and itchy insides. Aunt Evie gave them a joint present, a box of dominoes. Papa showed them how to play. Neely didn't like the game, so Papa and Francie played together, and he pretended to be disgusted when he lost. Grandma Mary Romilly brought over something very nice that she had made herself. She brought each a scapular, to make it, she cut out two small ovals of bright red wool. On one, she embroidered a cross of bright blue yarn, and on the other, a golden heart crowned with brown thorns. A black dagger went through the heart, and two drops of deep red blood dripped from the dagger point. The cross and heart were very tiny and made with microscopic stitches. The two ovals were stitched together and attached to a piece of corset string. Mary Romilly had taken the scapulars to be blessed by the priest before she had brought them over. As she skip, slipped the scapular over Francie's head, she said, Heiliges Weichnachten. Then she added, May you walk with the angels always. Aunt Sissy gave Francie a tiny package. She opened it and found a tiny matchbox. It was very fragile and covered with crinkly paper with a miniature spray of purple wisteria painted on the top. Francie pushed the box open. It held ten discs individually wrapped in pink tissue. The discs turned out to be bright golden pennies. Sissy explained that she had bought a bit of gold paint powder, mixed it with a few drops of banana oil, and had gilded each penny. 
Francie loved Sissy's present the best of all. A dozen times within the hour of receiving it, she slid open the box slowly, gaining great pleasure from holding the box and looking at it and watching the cobalt blue paper and clean wafer-thin wood of the inside of the box appear. The golden pennies wrapped in the dreamlike tissue was a never-tiring miracle. Everyone agreed that the pennies were too beautiful to be spent. During the day, Francie lost two of her pennies somewhere. Mama suggested that they'd be safest in the tin can bank. She promised that Francie could have them back when the bank was opened. Francie was sure that Mama was right about the pennies being safest in the bank, yet it was a wrench to let those golden pennies drop down into the darkness. Papa had a special present for Francie. It was a postcard with a church on it. Powdered isinglass was pasted on the roof and it glistened more brightly than real snow. The church window panes were made of tiny squares of shiny orange paper. The magic in this card was that when Francie held it up, light streamed through the paper panes and threw golden shadows on the glistening snow. It was a beautiful thing. Mama said that since it wasn't written on, Francie could save it for next year and mail it to someone. Oh no, said Francie. She put both hands over the card and held it to her chest. Mama laughed. You must learn to take a joke, Francie, otherwise life will be pretty hard on you. Christmas is no day f- <laughs> Christmas is no day for lessons, <laughs> said Papa. But it is a day for getting drunk, isn't it? She flared up. Two drinks is all I had, Katie, Johnny pleaded. I was treated for Christmas. There we go, the accent's back. Francie went into the bedroom and shut the door. She couldn't bear to hear Mama scolding Papa. Just before supper, Francie distributed the gifts she had for them. She had a hat pin holder for Mama. She had made it with a penny test tube bought at Nip's drugstore. She had covered it with a sheath of blue satin ribbon ruffled at the sides. A length of baby ribbon was sewn to the top. It was meant to hang on the side of the dresser and hold hat pins. She had a watch fob for Papa. She had made it on a spool which had four nails driven into the top. It took two shoelaces. These were worked over and around the nails, and a thick braided fob kept growing out of the bottom of the spool as she worked it. Johnny had no watch, but he took an iron faucet washer, attached the fob to it, and wore it in his vest pocket all day, pretending it was a watch. Francie had a very fine present for Neely, a five-cent shooter, which looked like an oversized opal rather than a marble. Neely had a box full of midges, midges, small brown and blue speckled marbles made of clay, which cost a penny for 20. But he had no good shooter and couldn't get into any important games. Francie watched him as he crooked his forefinger and cradled the marble in it with his thumb behind it. It looked nice and natural that way, and she was glad she had got it for him, rather than the nickel pop gun she had first thought of buying.
Neely shoved the marble in his pocket and announced that he had presents too. He ran into the bedroom, crawled under his cot, and came out with a sticky bag. He thrust it at Mama, saying, You share them out. He stood in a corner. Mama opened the bag. There was a striped candy cane for each one. Mama went into ecstasies. She said it was the prettiest present she had ever had. She kissed Neely three times. Francie tried very hard not to be jealous because Mama made more fuss over Neely's present than hers. It was in that same week that Francie told another great lie. Aunt Evie brought over two tickets. Some Protestant organization was giving a celebration for the poor of all faiths. There would be a decorated Christmas tree on the stage, a Christmas play, carol singing, and a gift for each child. Katie couldn't see it, Catholic children at a Protestant party. Evie urged tolerance. Mama finally gave in and Francie and Neely went to the party. It was in a large auditorium. The boys sat on one side and the girls on the other. The celebration was fine, except that the play was religious and dull. After the play, church ladies went down the aisle and gave each child a gift. All of the girls got checkerboards and all the boys got lotto games. After a little more singing, a lady came out on the stage and announced a special surprise. The surprise was a lovely little girl, exquisitely dressed, who came from the wings carrying a beautiful doll. The doll was a foot high, had real yellow hair and blue eyes that opened and shut with real eyelashes. The lady led the children forward and made a speech. This little girl is named Mary. Little Mary smiles and bowed. The little girls in the audience smiled up at her, and some of the boys, who were approaching adolescence, whistled shrilly. Mary's mother bought this doll and had clothes made for it, just like the clothes little Mary is wearing. Little Mary stepped forward and held the doll high in the air. Then she let the lady hold it while she spread her skirt and made a curtsy. It was true, saw Francie. The doll's lace-trimmed blue silk dress, pink hair bow, black patent leather slippers, and white silk socks duplicated exactly the clothes of the beautiful Mary. Now, said the lady, this doll named Mary after the kind little girl who is giving her away. Again, the little girl smiled graciously. Mary wants to give the doll to some poor little girl in the audience who is named Mary. Like wind on growing corn, a rippling murmur came from all the little girls in the audience. Is there any poor little girl in the audience named Mary? There was a great hush. There were at least a hundred Marys in that audience. It was that adjective, poor, that struck them dumb. No Mary would stand up, no matter how much she wanted the doll, and be a symbol of all the poor little girls in the audience. 
they began whispering to each other that they weren't poor and had better dolls at home and better clothes than that girl too, only they didn't feel like wearing them. Francie sat numb, longing for that doll with all her soul. What? said the lady. No Marys? She waited and made her announcement again. No response. She spoke regretfully. Too bad there are no Marys. Little Mary will have to take the doll home again. The little girl smiled and bowed and turned to leave the stage with the doll. Francie couldn't stand it. She couldn't stand it. It was like when the teacher was going to throw the pumpkin pie in the wastebasket. She stood up and held her hand high in the air. The lady saw it and stopped the little girl from leaving the stage. Ah, we do have a Mary. A very bashful Mary, but a Mary just the same. Come right up on the stage, Mary. Feverish with embarrassment, Francie walked up the long aisle and onto the stage. She stumbled on the steps and all the girls snickered and the boys guffawed. What is your name? asked the lady. Mary Frances Nolan, whispered Francie. Louder and look at the audience. Miserably, Francie faced the audience and said loudly, Mary Frances Nolan. All the faces looked like bloated balloons on thick strings. She thought that if she kept on looking, the faces would float away up to the ceiling. The beautiful girl came forward and put the doll in Francie's arms. Francie's arms took a natural curve around it. It was as if her arms had waited and grown so just for that doll. The beautiful Mary extended her hand for Francie to shake. In spite of embarrassment and confusion, Francie noticed the delicate white hand had the tracery of pale blue veins and the oval nails that glowed like delicate pink seashells. The lady talked as Francie backed awkwardly to her seat. She said, You have all seen an example of the true Christmas spirit. Little Mary is a very rich little girl and received many beautiful dolls for Christmas, but she is not selfish. She wanted to make some poor little Mary, who was not as fortunate as herself, happy. So she gave the doll to that poor little girl who is named Mary too. Francie's eyes smarted with hot tears. Why can't they, she thought bitterly, just give the doll away without saying I am poor and she is rich? Why couldn't they just give it away with all, without all the talking about it? That was not all of Francie's shame. As she walked down the aisle, the girls leaned towards her and whispered hissingly, Beggar, beggar, beggar. It was beggar, beggar, beggar all the way down the aisle. Those girls felt richer than Francie. They were as poor as she, but they had something she lacked, pride, and Francie knew it. She had no compunctions about the lie and getting the doll under false pretenses. She was paying for the lie and the doll by giving up her pride. 
She remembered the teacher who had told her to write her lies instead of speaking them. Maybe she shouldn't have gone up for the doll, but should have written a story about it instead. But no, no, having the doll was better than any story about having a doll. When they stood to sing the star-spangled banner in closing, Fancy put her face down close to the doll's face. There was the cool, delicate smell of painted china, the wonderful, unforgettable smell of a doll's hair, the heavenly feel of new gauze doll's clothes. The doll's real eyelashes touched her cheek and she trembled in ecstasy. The children were singing, O'er the land of the free and the home of the brave. <laughs> Fancy held one of the doll's tiny hands tightly. A nerve in her thumb throbbed and she thought the doll's hand twitched. She almost believed the doll was real. She told Mama the doll had been given to her as a prize. She dared not tell the truth. Mama hated anything that smacked of charity, and if she knew, she'd throw the doll away. Neely didn't snitch on her. Francie now owned the doll, but had yet another lie on her soul. That afternoon, she wrote a story about a little girl who wanted a doll so much that she was willing to give over her immortal soul to purgatory for eternity if she could have the doll. It was a strong story, but when Francie read it over, she thought, that's all right for the girl in the story, but it doesn't make me feel any better. She thought, she thought of the confession she would have to make the next Saturday. She resolved that no matter what penance father gave her, she would triple it voluntarily. Still, she felt no better. Then she remembered something. Maybe she could make the lie a truth. She knew that when Catholic children received confirmation, they were expected to take some saint's name for a middle name. What a simple solution. She would take the name of Mary when she confirmed. That night, after the page from the Bible and the page from Shakespeare had been read, Francie consulted Mama. Mama, when I make my confirmation, can I take Mary for a middle name? No. Francie's heart sunk. Why? Because when you were christened, you were named Francie after Andy's girl. I know. But you were also named Mary after my mother. Your real name is Mary Frances Nolan. Mm -hmm. Francie took the doll to bed with her. She lay very still so as not to disturb it. She woke up from time to time in the night and whispered, Mary, and touched the doll's infinitesimal slipper with a light finger. She trembled at feeling the thin, soft bit of smooth leather. It was to be her first and her last doll. <laughs>